Thank you for uh, inviting me. It's so good to be with you. Um, uh, I want to encourage you. I'm, I'm a visitor here. All of you that now know that I'm a visitor, and uh, uh, I want to encourage you if you're a visitor to New, new Life here that uh, God has wonderful things that He wants to do in and through your life. Uh, and the reason why it particularly uh, hits me this morning, and I, I was thinking about this, I was driving home last night. I have family in, so I couldn't stay over the weekend, uh, which disappointed uh, both the Benningers and us because we wanted to connect with each other. But I have family in, so I was driving home, and I got a little text message, or actually a voicemail from, from a man. His name is Terry. And uh, Terry, uh, two years ago, uh, was wandering around the little city of Xenia. He came from a, a surrounding town because his life was a shambles. It was a wreck. Uh, and uh, his marriage was falling apart. Uh, things were just, uh, he didn't know what to do. And he just woke up one morning and he felt like he needed to go to church. And he'd been to church for a long time. So Terry came in. I can see him. And when I was uh, standing up in the auditorium, he was right over here in this corner. I don't know who's sitting over here in the corner, but I'm not meaning to point to you, but... I think of Terry in that regard, and Terry came in, and uh, God did a deep work in his life, and God let me do a little watering and let my colleague do a little bit more planting, and, and then Terry decided that he needed Christ to, to restore that which was broken. Two years down the, way, the road, Terry is a, is a sweet follower of Christ. He and his wife are back together, and uh, he texted me yesterday on the way home, and talked about how he had been in a prison ministry yesterday and how he'd sat down alongside two men and shared the hope and his testimony of what Christ had done to him and how he was overwhelmed to have the privilege to pray with two of them to receive Christ. It changed his life. Uh, and it was just encouragement to me. Yeah, that's a, it's a clap-worthy moment uh, in terms of that. And if you're here today, I hope you hear my heart and you hear what we're up to. If you're someone who doesn't know Christ and all this Christ language seems foreign to you, I hope that you'll have a little bit more understanding of who Jesus is and His heart uh, and understand uh, that uh, what I'm really after this morning, truly, deeply, is uh, how do we really love our neighbors? How do we love our neighbors? What does it mean? There's no one in this room who aspires to be a hater. If you are because it's deeply broken in you that someone hurt you or you've been hurt or you feel abandoned and you're full of hate, but that's not where anyone wants to go. Nobody wants to be a hater. And we live in a culture that talks about love-hate all the time. And either you're with us or you're a hater. And there's, I, I, I work with college students all the time, and college students feel the pressure in the social environment. And they don't want to be haters. Uh, and sometimes as followers of Jesus, and here we're going to speak as followers of Jesus because we, we want to follow Jesus because I trust Jesus, and Jesus is the one who loves me cross deep. He loves me cross deep, and He's empowered me resurrection strong. That's Jesus. So I want to trust Him and follow Him, and I want to lean in on Him for every day and every life. And I have uh, young people that are trying to wrestle with all those things. They feel the pressure of where they are and where they've been. And sometimes they have this naivete about themselves that if I can just be so culturally savvy, if I can just be so with it, and I can just represent Jesus just right, then everybody will think I'm just so cool and want to follow Jesus with me. And I look at them in the face and I say, bless you, because I, I hope that too. But that's just not true. And that, that just is naive about the nature of the darkness that we face. And, and matter of fact, I, I think everyone in this room who's a follower of Jesus would say this, Jesus was the most Jesus person ever, right? Amen? 
He was the most Jesus person. He did everything right. He said everything right. He represented God right every moment. He wept for people. He spoke the truth. And what happened to Jesus? They crucified him. He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. Right? He made himself poor that others might be made rich. Okay? And Jesus told us as his disciples that if you follow me, and you look like me. And one of the things that I'm anticipating as followers of Christ, nobody is waking up today hoping that someone will not like them. Nobody wants that. No follower of Christ wants that. But I'm waking up today and I want to be full of Jesus because what the people in my life need more than anything else is a Greg full of Jesus. And, and what happens after that? Well, let the chips fall where they may because I've brought them Jesus. That's what they need. I can't be responsible for how they respond, but I may weep at how they respond. I may fall on my knees at how they respond, but I'm going to represent Jesus because they need him. So by God's grace, I want to bring you Jesus today, and I want to let Jesus speak to us and help us through this moment of our own particular moment where we are, a moment of real stress and difficulty, a moment of where not only is it confusing because what we thought were the old foundation stones are getting moved everywhere, but it's even rippling through the people of God so that the voice of the gospel, as Pastor was talking about here, is, is an unsound, a, a, a kind of a dissonant voice because even among people who profess the name of Christ, their attitudes towards what's happening in this area of sex and gender is very confusing. Very confusing. So I, I want to go back and hear the voice of Jesus, and I want you to listen in with me as we come here. So would you turn to Matthew 19? And I'll prep you here that we are going to get to Matthew 19, but I need to, to set some things up here as we work our way through, uh, as we work there. Now, when my wife and I were getting ready to start a family in the early 1990s, right, 1992 was my first daughter was born, uh, we, we went and, and standard in prenatal care, which is still pretty standard now, is you would go uh, and you would have a sonogram, checking on the, the little one, right? Everybody's seen one of those little alien baby pictures, right? Uh, you're looking at this thing, look, it's, 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 it's our baby. And you're looking at it saying, oh, thank the Lord. It looks a lot, it doesn't look very human, but praise the Lord, right? Um, sometimes, always it's usually the, the, the waiting for, if you were uh, you know, one of those couples that wanted to know the sex of the baby, right? You waited to a particular time and then you had that kind of thing. And now, which we didn't have back then, you would have a gender reveal party, right? Uh, and you explode something pink or something blue, right? Whatever. Okay, we, did, we didn't have those at that point in time. And matter of fact, we were, I was kind of the disposition. I didn't want to know until, time, until that time, but my wife desperately wanted to know why. So you could decorate the nursery, right? That kind of thing. So, but when we went there, that, 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 the technician would tell us the, the, the sex of the baby. And that was a, a blessed announcement. And in our case, all four times, it was the same announcement. It's a girl. We had four girls, right? And God is blessed uh, our family with four sweet women now, uh, no longer girls now. My youngest one is a senior at Cedarville University, and the other three are all graduated and spread around. Two are married uh, by God's grace. Uh, despite uh, their parents, uh, God is, they're following Christ, uh, and I'm so thankful for that today. I prayed for them and text them today in their various ministries and things that they would listen to Jesus wholeheartedly today, wherever they are. 
But God blessed us with, with four girls, and each time that was, that was a relief because if some of your wives were like mine, we had interminable discussions about baby names, right? Did any of you have that discussion, some of you husbands and wives? And she had a stack of boys' names and a stack of girls' names, and we were eliminating those and had discussions about, well, one thing we could do immediately if it's a girl, we could drop all the boy names, all right? Thank God that was dropped, and now we could just zero in on the girl names, then uh, all the people could plan for the baby shower because we knew what to get now in terms of buying clothes, right? We knew how to decorate the nursery. Uh, we would turn to trusted resources. And myself, I remember in particular, the, you know, uh, young people, you have to put up with this cheesy uh, kind of parent moment here. But I still remember when my oldest daughter, Jacqueline, was born and I was sitting in a, in a hospital in Scotland is where she was born. And I was sitting there and my wife had done all the heavy lifting and she's wiped out over there and they give me the baby to hold and I'm holding it awkwardly as this, I got this China doll in my hand that I'm not sure how to do things well. And I remember doing all the cheesy things of pull, unwrapping her and looking at her and saying, God, this is too big for me. This is too big. I don't know if I have enough in me to, to love this one for life. I remember that. I still feel that way. Still feel that way. And so here we were thinking, we've got an idea. Now, I started looking at dads who looked like their girls loved them, right? And looked like they understood how to raise girls and how to love girls because, I, 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 God, I need some help on that. So I was looking around. I was talking to older men. I was asking them about these things and trying to figure out because I felt now that we could turn to trusted resources and figure out how to raise girls. That's what I was trying to do. Now, when we got that, it didn't put our girls into a tiny box, right? To know that they were female or that they were women didn't put them in a tiny box. As a matter of fact, if you met my four girls, you couldn't put them in a tiny box. They're very different from each other. I've got a, a one that's going to be in business. I've got one that's a geologist. I have one that's a nurse. And I have another one that's a communication artsy one, right? So I have all different uh, kind of uh, uh, personalities and, and, and desires, but, but they are all women. And I'll tell you, they're all different from me. Okay. Uh, men, you know these things, and this is maybe true of my house and not true of yours. Uh, I've grown up uh, you know, with lots of male friends and hung around the dorm and different things like that. I cannot remember ever one of my male friends coming home after they had purchased some article of clothing and asking all the men to get into a room so that they could do a little fashion show. Okay, now, I'm, I'm just saying from my experience, that may be not your experience, but that happens in my house all the time. It happened yesterday. It happened yesterday. I was invited into that show, right? Yesterday. What do you think, Dad? What do you think? Now, now I, I don't, I'm not going to box them in, but they're all different than me, and they know it, right? For a long time when, I was, uh, when they were girls, I got a buy because I was a dad. I didn't count because boys to them were just all weird and stupid. Uh, but, but I was in a different category. I was a dad, so I, I didn't fit into the boy category. And I kept reminding them, I am a boy, so you are speaking about me uh, in some sense. <laughs> Now, you, you could go back and say, well, these were the naive 90s. These were the type of things where we were just naive. We, to put the best spin on it, we thought that, that your sex, your biology, said something about your identity. We thought that. But today, many would speak much more harshly about or even condemn the way we thought about gender and what that meant for our daughters and for us as parents. In many influential quarters, sex has no necessary connection to gender identity. Earlier this month, many of you know, uh, may have read the story. Uh, I believe her name is 
Cody Dottie, or Cody Doty, I'm not sure exactly how she pronounces her name, but you'll notice that the name itself is genderless or gender nonspecific uh, because that reflects her own view of sex and gender. But uh, she had a child which she named Cyril Atlee Doty, which of course you can understand is genderless, uh, which of course among um, uh, the group of people now known as the millennials or the hipsters or whatever the case may be, uh, gender nonspecific names are very popular today, right? Or actually choosing names that are traditionally used for males or females to cross the boundaries and apply them otherwise. But uh, with her, it's very nonspecific. And here's her quote. She was the first parent that we know of in the Canadian health system to succeed in getting virtually the, the Canadian equivalent of a birth certificate without any gender specification for her child. And these are her words. It is up to Cyril to decide how, to how they identify when they are old enough to develop their own gender identity. I'm not going to foreclose their choices based on arbitrary assignment of gender at birth based on an inspection of their genitals. In other words, it should not be assumed that a person's genetics and associated anatomical features have any necessary connection to their sense of self, nor should they be encouraged to think that there is or should be any kind of connection. In fact, a person's gender identity is something that they should identify for themselves, and their biology, their sex, may even need to be fixed to bring it into line with who they think they are. Now, even among the church, this debate is, is raging in certain quarters. And so if I were to try to put this theologically, and I hope as you're thinking scripturally about this, that you'll see the dissonance in the way I'm going to put it here and uh, over against the way the scripture would teach. But if I were to try to put this in, in a theological terms, I would say this. This would be arguing that when a person senses in their heart that their physical self doesn't match their mind or their heart in terms of that is that they need to follow their heart. It sounds like every Disney movie I've ever watched, right? So in, in Scripture, of course, the heart is the center of a person. It's thinking, willing, choosing. It's not just the affections. The heart is something broader to talk about the inner uh, part of a person that directs and guides and, and orients them toward life. All this means, then, is that my wife and I were wrong to think that sex of our children had any more significance for their identity than the color of their eyes. It was misguided, oppressive, and even abusive to assume that because our children had female bodies, it was good and right to raise them to be women. We could have served our children better by leading them to think something like this. Your body may be a mistake, but you will figure out who you are if you listen to your heart. And you can count on us as mom and dad to affirm and help you fully express whoever you think you are. Now, I don't think that's overstating the case of where we are in terms of where many of the cultural elites are trying to lead us in terms of uh, the West. Now, many of you are aware that if you uh, are Facebook users, now I understand, especially for my college students and my daughters, uh, Facebook is, is, the germane, is the domain of most of the older people in the room now that they've migrated on to other things. 
in terms of that, and they get onto Facebook to keep up threads with other people or to check on the old people that are in their life, uh, so to speak. Uh, but Facebook itself, of course, is famous for embracing this kind of move wholeheartedly. And I just gave you a little clip of some of theirs, and we could spend the whole morning trying to work through all the nomenclature that's going to be listed here, but we're not going to do that. We will do it selectively. But they're famous for embracing that. And matter of fact, they started giving lists of possible gender identities that, that, that the individual Facebook user could choose from, but then they, they just kind of either uh, were worn out by trying to, the, the proliferation of them, or they realized that even the attempt to make a list was somehow oppressive. And so now you just have a custom button where you can go describe yourself in terms of how you see, and you can mix and match as you see fit. And so what you get from this, though, is the idea that clearly there's no boundaries. And, and the only person that's a problem is the person who thinks there are boundaries. That's the person who's the problem. That's the person who may be oppressing someone from fully becoming their authentic self, something that they get to determine based on their own feelings and own thoughts. And that almost is the crime of all crimes in our modern society, to actually suggest that there's a good way to be. So there's nothing here, and, and there's no boundaries. There's nothing to celebrate. There's nothing to protect. There's nothing to nurture. So when it comes to, to, to my girls and my family, right, if I'm rightly ordered as I understand Scripture, I need to thank God for these women because I need them as a man to fully understand what it means to be human, that they bring something to the table that I can't offer. And that I need to appreciate that. I need to encourage them to embrace their femininity, to be fully a female. And I need to help them to figure that out. And I need to celebrate that. Now, of course, we as men and women, we always joke about the stereotypes about men and women, right? And we do that in good-natured ways and love one another in that way. But if we get to the point where we dismiss and downgrade one another, because we live in a culture that tries to pit men and women against each other all the time. It's hate, hate between men and women. Well, that's not the biblical way. That's not the Christ way. Well, I want to celebrate them. I want to appreciate them. I want to lean in when, when I, as a man, don't tackle problems the same way they do. Right? And I, I need to appreciate that. And as a, as a dad, I, I get one of these regular calls. And my girls know this, and I, I've told it before. I'll get one of these calls. Men, I don't know if you ever got this. And, and ladies, you can take your side because my wife knows what happens to me when I start to melt down. But I'll get one of these calls from my girls, and they'll say, hey, Dad. I'll say, hey, honey. And I know, I know by the way it's said already that, that something's bad. Hey, Dad. And I say, hey, honey, how's it going? And it goes, right? And she just needs to unload on me, and she knows that I'm safe to do that, and she knows that I'm going to listen. I'm not going to try to fix it immediately, but she knows that at the end of it, I'm going to love her and point her back to Jesus and say, it's okay. How can we move through this? I love you. Right? And you can lean on me anytime. Now, I play that role in her. But I'll tell you, I don't regularly call my daughters up and say, hey, Dominique. And she goes, yes, Dad. And then I just unload on her. I just don't do the same thing. Right? That doesn't make me better or worse. Sometimes I'm the kind of guy where people have to come and poke and poke and poke to get me to be honest with myself. Right? So the issue here is uh, there's no boundaries, nothing to nurture, nothing to protect. Now, let me talk about the more academic setting here for a moment to use this terminology, and I'll describe this, and this is a little bit of, of um, the alphabet that we see all the time 
uh, in the discussion of LBGT is what we often see when we're talking about this uh, uh, same-sex attraction, gender identity issues. These are the ones that are, that are most uh, current. I've given you a, a long one here, but the problem about talking about all these, among people who rep are represented by these letters, there's a, there's a fierce discussion where they're not all in agreement about how to define everything in here, uh, nor are they all in agreement with each other about how they view life and human, uh, what it means to be human. But one thing is that this group stands over against what they feel people who don't want to embrace this alphabet. Okay? Now, if you're to look at this alphabet, and we'll talk about it, the, the B that's here that stands for bisexual and the uh, last A that stands for ally, those by far represent the vast majority of the people, the numbers of people that are represented by those letters. Because if you take all the other letters and you put them together, it's a very small minority of the overall population. So what are they? And what is this kind of lay of the land that's here? And so I'll give you brief definitions. We won't go for long, and then we'll, we'll dig into it. So let's start off counterclockwise at the left up here with lesbian, and we'll work our way around. Lesbian uh, is a familiar, it's been around for a while, women who are sexually attracted to other women. Gay. Now that one's a little bit broader. Men who are sexually attracted to other men, but also it's a general term denoting same-sex attraction. So it could be gay rights, for example, in the political arena. Uh, bisexual. One who is sexually attracted to and interested in both men and women. Now when my girls were in high school, and things were beginning to break out, this used to be the cool thing to put on your Facebook page as your new gender identity as being bi. And uh, I would ask my daughters about this, and they thought, well, that, that person's not bi, but it's just cool to be that. Now, I don't know where they were and where they weren't, but that became the cool thing to do in, in their moment. Transgendered, a person physically born as male or female, but is either starting the transition to or currently lives according to the gender they feel they really are inside. Now, I want to say this as I work through all these things. Um, I, I prayed to God that, that, that what I would say would be to the point and would reflect both the heart and the mind of Christ. And uh, when I describe these, I, I hope you forgive me for any time that, that I, I'm flippant about these things. I am not flippant about these things at all. All of these letters represent real struggles real pain, real hurting people, and families that are impacted and devastated by them. Whenever I read the term transgendered, I think of, of a couple that I was involved in their premarital counseling and going to their wedding and seeing the bride's brother come out as female for the first time at her wedding. Now, transgendered could mean that a person is, is saying, I, I feel more female than I do male. It could mean that they're beginning to explore cross-dressing. It could mean that uh, they're beginning uh, to consider changing their name to identify according to how they see themselves. It could mean more drastically that they're moving toward hormone treatments to make the phys physiological changes till ultimately it becomes uh, a surgery that they change uh, through things. So all along that is this transgendered kind of perspective. Right, the QQ that you see there is queer and are questioning. Uh, queer is not used in one precise way. Uh, it can be an attitude, a political stance, or a philosophical orientation. 
it generally identifies one as challenging the normal value and hierarchy of most sexual expressions and identities. Now, just break that down. It challenges to say you're queer is that I, I reject that there are only two binary options. I reject that there's just male and female or that male and female has to be expressed in a particular way or is that there is anything to maleness and femaleness. Moving on, intersexed, if you see there the I. One who is born with ambiguous genitalia or chromosomal issues that don't distinguish one clearly as male or female. Mostly this is a physiological issue, not so much a psychological identity issue, and usually this resolves into identifying as male or female. The A, the first A there, asexual, no sexual attraction to others or interest in sexual activity at all. And then finally, ally, a heterosexual who is actively standing in support of all the other letters. Okay. Now, I was just talking with uh, uh, someone here uh, last night, and they were making me aware that outside of one of the schools here in, in Gehenna, always Gehenna, right? Gehenna or Gehenna? I don't know which one. As a Bible guy, it's always a problem for me to call the church in Gehenna. Uh, but if you, if you don't know that Bible thing, Gehenna is the word for hell in Scripture. But thankfully, you're planted here, right, against the gates of hell, right? Whatever. It's terrible. It's terrible. But that's just the Bible thing. Sorry. Now, the, the thing about, the thing about uh, someone was saying here is that uh, at one of the local schools they were made aware of by one of, our, one of your youth pastors has, as you walk in the door, has a big sign saying ally right there. Now, for every good thing that that says, that says that we don't hate you, that we are not going to persecute you, that, that we're, not going to, we're not going to turn you away, that's all good. But in every way that that says, you know, this is good for you, we, we want to encourage you along that path. We don't want uh, to help you embrace how God has created you and wants to redeem you to become. And that way I weep over that. So we have this moment where Brent Waters wants to say, to kind of summarize it this way, is that we have become, uh, what we have become to, is that we are creative people who have the power to create our world, ourselves, and our future. Right? We're in this moment where we feel that we have, we've cut ourselves free from every sort of structure of how we really should be, and now we're made, we can make ourselves into whatever image that we desire. And matter of fact, that's the core freedom that we need to give each individual. And not only that, and beyond that, but we need to embrace it ourselves that that's good and true. Many of you, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the gender-bred person that's here. I put that up there because uh, on many college campuses, I won't give the particular one that I drew from their website, but on many college campuses today, as freshmen are coming in this fall to get oriented, they'll be uh, getting orientation to sex and gender and identity issues, and the gender-bred person will be used to help them think about themselves and think about their uh, neighbors so that they can live appropriately as a college community. And that gender-bred person, you'll notice here, uh, the sex, a person's anatomy, their physiology is one thing. Uh, their heart, who they're attracted to, which you could have male genitalia or female genitalia and be attracted to males or females or to both. And then your mind is how you think of yourself. So you could have male genitalia, be attracted to other males, but think of yourself as a woman. And then expression is how you want that identity to be expressed to the culture at large that may not correspond with any way that they would conceive of male or femaleness. So, the gender-bred person. 
So finally, Glenn Stanton says this, and I would recommend, uh, I, there are resources that, and a little, uh, I want to say this here, the resources I put together, a little handout, I believe it's out in the lobby, that if you want to read further, uh, I really encourage you to do that, and a number of good resources here. And one is by Glenn Stanton, who writes about this moment, it says, the church has never faced anything close to the full court press exerted by so many influential and powerful uh, in politics, media, the arts, and business. These voices seek no demand, unquestioned acceptance of, and full respect for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgendered sexual mores and practices, and seem to be more pressuring every month. They insist that society see these new relationships as just as normal and valuable as the historically constant, culturally universal, and socially normative heterosexual married family. One is to be seen no better, more important, or necessary than another. And in this sense, when he says in this moment has no parallel in history, he certainly is right with regards to the West. It has no parallel. Now, as uh, one person prayed this morning before we came in, there is nothing new under the sun in terms of what's happening. But the degree to which we experience that in the West is different than we've ever seen before. So the question we want to ask is, how should followers of Christ respond to it? What should we do? How should we, we do that when it seems like, as has been mentioned, it seems like the very foundation stones are being removed under our feet? It's as if we've always believed that the sky is blue, and now somebody says, no, 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 it's green. And, and we just don't know how to respond to that. We thought it was obvious that men and women are different, right? You know how we live in a culture, every so often a study comes out and says men and women are different? And you're thinking, do we really need to keep studying that? I mean, seriously. I don't give away with the stereotypes, but still, do we need to keep studying that? Haven't we agreed upon that? Doesn't your own human experience teach you that? I know it's hard for me to quantify all the differences, but they're different. So we're in that kind of moment. And so what do we do? How do we respond? Many people are stepping in and saying, well, this is great. And if we're going to be loving people, we just need to affirm it. Well, really, do we? Is that really what love means? Okay. Now, here's where we're going to turn to Jesus. And we're going to turn to the book of Matthew. And I want to take you to one of the most familiar passages that you know of. And I know you've heard it here if you've been around New Life Church for a while. Matthew, the book of Matthew, is a manual for followers of Jesus. Jesus' term was disciples. Okay. The book of Matthew was written probably to a group of Christians who are undergoing serious persecution because of following Jesus. And he's writing Matthew to remind them of who Jesus is, of his power, of his person, of his right to be called king because he has power and authority over all creation and over everything. And he demonstrated it irrefutably in his resurrection from the grave. So it's writing to reacquaint them with who Jesus is as a person, but it's also writing to reacquaint them with what He taught them and what He commissioned them to do and who they are and who their world is and who their neighbor is and, and how they should live in it. And He says that, that, that I want you to go into all the world and teach them what I've taught you. Well, if you're reading the book of Matthew, well, Jesus, what, what did you teach us? Jesus said, I just, it's in the book of Matthew. I just gave you 28 chapters. So go back through the book of Matthew and, and, and learn that yourself, live it yourself into the, the fullness of the joy of the life that I'm calling you to and join me on this mission of reclamation and restoration. Move out. 
move out for the cause of Christ. And I will be with you, the resurrected ruling king. I will be with you to the end of the age. I've authorized you and I will protect you and I will go before you and I will enable you in that ministry, so go out. Well, then what does that mean then? Well, if we're to put it in two kind of simple ways, well, what is our mission? Well, our mission is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. Well, that's the thing. And, and, and again, in the culture, if we said those two things, they might be okay as long as we don't define God. If you define God, then it gets a little touchy. But, but, and also, they would be happy to use love your neighbor as long as we don't define what actually love consists of. What does it actually mean to love someone? Any parent that's in here is loving your kids. But love always is, and this is what love is, love is always trying to take someone toward their best, what's best for them. That's what makes a love different from hate. But the real question that's begging to be asked is, well, well, what is the best for my daughter? What is the best for my son? What does it actually mean to them? How do I truly love them toward enjoying and being fully human, if you want to use that phrase? What does that mean? Where do I get instruction for that? Well, if you listen to our culture, there's no guidance. More and more as a parent, your only job is just to birth them and then let them figure it out. Right? Maybe keep them from killing each other on the path, but you just, just you let them figure it out. Well, is, is, is that loving or is that really hating someone? Right? Well, here, when we get information, Jesus is the one that takes us into that. And here's what he wants to say. For Jesus... A singular devotion to God, which is before all else and above all else, is primary for a person who's going to love. It's my relationship with God that transforms me and enables me to actually love my neighbor. And it actually directs me to what it means to love my neighbor. For me as a husband of my wife, Rana, we've been married almost 34 years. We've got a couple years to go. All right, we're almost 34 years. We've got a, about a, a month to go. And uh, we have two more years to go before we'll be with each other twice as long as we were with our parents. 36 years. So we've been... But, but what does it mean for me to love my wife? I want to love my wife. I want to, to promote her best. Well, what it means for me is that I, I'm going to submit to God and whatever God says that God's created her to be and He wants to redeem her to become, then... For me to love her is to love her toward what God's created her to be and redeeming her to become. So as we move forward, this love means a complete trust in God and a complete submission to Him. All other loves are ordered under our singular devotion to God. So to love must be uh, uh, driven and directed by God's purposes for humanity is revealed in creation and redemption. To abandon God's purposes for His creation is not only to dishonor God, but it's to hate people. Now, that's a strong statement. I even hate to use that term, actually. I hate to hate, right? I hate to use that term, but it really is the case is that if I'm leading my girls away from what God has created them to be and wants to rescue them to become, I'm taking them toward destruction, toward a life that, that they weren't created to enjoy. And so today, I, I was on my knees, or I should say, I had my eyes wide open and I was driving in the car from Xenia to Columbus, praying today for my girls that God's purposes in their life would be more fully realized today than it was yesterday. Now, that's love biblically. 
And so humility then for us as Christians, because all of us, when we think about this moment, we often are shooting one another all the time about the way we represent Jesus because we get uneasy about people being maybe too harsh. Or, you know, it's, we, we're like the, the end scene in um, uh, The Incredibles, if you remember that, when, when uh, Flash is running and the parents are up there, if you remember that scene, and, and they're saying, he starts to go too fast. They go, no, 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 slow down, slow down, slow down. And then he gets, no, no, speed up a little bit further. And, and we as Christians, no, no, don't say it so hard. No, 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 say it easy. No, 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 say it hard. And we're, we're tacking each other all the time about how we represent Jesus. And, and, and the people who need to hear Jesus are lost while we're too busy trying to figure out how we just present it perfectly. Well, let me just help you. You won't ever do it perfectly. And if you get stuck on that perfectly thing, you'll never open your mouth for Jesus. I'm going to be human and step out and apologize when I get it wrong. I want to be truthful with people. How many of you parents have ever got it wrong with your kids? Did that stop you from going after them? Well, I hope not. So here we are as the people of God. We need to go after. But to be humble in a sense where everybody says, well, I don't say anything. Well, to be humble where God is specific is to be unfaithful. That's not humility. That's unfaithfulness. So what is... Christ teach us. And I'm going to skip this part here about sin. And I want, whoops, let me come back. And I want to talk to you from Matthew 19. So come to Matthew 19 with me. And let's look at verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him in Matthew 19 and verse 3 to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, really for the sake of the wives who were being abused. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for the marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, what does this teach us that takes us into this issue? How can we follow Jesus in terms of, as Pastor talked about, renewing our mind? How should we think about the issue of gender and sex from the perspective of Jesus? Now, here's, here's what we find. Well, God created men and women, males and females, there's no other gender options, okay? And we're going to talk about this. There's no other gender options in Jesus' moment in history either. And, and there's no other in Scripture, any other idea that you can separate a person's biology from their identity. We'll come back to that. Second, for this reason, the idea is that He created them male and female, and then it says, for this reason, which is drawing from the Genesis 2 account of how God created Adam and Eve... But because God created them, it's for this reason that He actually created them male and female in a way that they complement one another, in the way that they fit each other. And it's for this reason that they move toward each other to form bonds that we call families and marriages. So it seems assumed that God just didn't create them. This is important. He didn't create men and women. He actually created them for each other. One of the marks of a healthy Christian is that they have a healthy view of the opposite sex. Because God actually created you for a relationship. If you're a woman in here that hates all men, you need Jesus to transform that. 
If you're a man in here that hates all women, you need Jesus to transform that. God created us for each other. God's creation of Eve was to meet Adam's loneliness. If you've read that account, you know that God lets Adam experience his loneliness directly. He gets to name the animals. He gets to see everything that's in creation. And he looks around and says, there's just nothing like me around here. And it's at that moment when he's experienced his aloneness that God comes in to meet that deep loneliness. And Eve is brought in and she's someone who's like him, but not like him. Someone who compliments him. So we find here God brings the woman out of the man as someone both intimately like him, but different, a helper corresponding to him in the message. And then both constitute humanity, both contribute uniquely, but complementarily to one another. In Genesis 1.27, it says, and God created them male and female, male and female, he created them. Humanity is a male and female unity. You know, one of the ways I like to describe the people of God is as Jesus is at work and he's rescuing Susan and Bob and Bill and Steve and Shirley and all the different people, as he's rescuing them, as he's, as he's coming in and restoring the masterpiece that you are and he's taking the scales of sin and, and, and pride and, and autonomy off of your eyes, is that what you get to see is you get to see men appearing and women appearing and humanity starts to flourish. You get to see people become human, right? If any of you are like me, you're Tolkien fans, Lord of the Ring fans, any Lord of the Ring fans in here, right? Uh, if you're that, uh, one of the ways that uh, often and this takes off of a theologian by the name of Augustine, that he likes to depict the, the, the effect of evil is that evil effectively dehumanizes people so that the most evil people in the Lord of the Rings, the ring wraiths, the people who ride around on dragons, they used to be men that by their being owned by these rings that symbolize their own autonomy and power, they progressively use their hu- lose their humanness and become just uh, uh, wisps of human beings. And so the issue here is that God needs us together to come as men and women to redo what we've undone. So the union of the man and the woman in marriage constitutes a new family. Previous loyalties are reordered under this new relationship. They leave their birth families and they hold fast now to one another. Now, here I have to do a a dad moment uh, and pull in here. Uh, I tried to embody this with my daughters when they leave. Um, uh, My my daughter's getting married. I'm I'm an old weepy guy. I just, I confess it. Uh, I cry. Uh, My girls, I love them. Um, And when they get married, it's always a bittersweet thing. Praise the Lord, both of them as they've married, they've married really good men. This is my third daughter here and her marriage last year. Uh, And so far, my daughters have let me do all their weddings. Uh, and some of you saying, how did you get through them? Well, I don't know. God gives me grace, but I haven't broken down and wept at, at their wedding uh, while I'm trying to do the service yet uh, in terms of that. But I, I, tried to, I tried to communicate to them in letters at, at big moments in their lives uh, because sometimes I just can't say it. Uh, and so I put down some words for her, uh, her mom and I that I wanted to write to them that I, I felt was trying to get after what I think Jesus is teaching here. And so I wrote this to Victoria. Marriage means that you are leaving and cleaving to each other. Victoria, your primary allegiance under Christ is now to each other. We want to honor this new family that God has put together by encouraging you to work together with Dan as you make decisions about home, family, and vocation. We will always be praying for you both. 
We will always be ready to help in whatever way we can. We will think carefully when you ask for advice. We will gladly make time for visits and welcome you into our home. We will welcome honest communication about expectations or wishes. We will honor your right to say no, and we hope you will ours as well. At the same time, we don't want to come between you and Dan in a battle for loyalties. We are now on the Steinhoff team so that the win-win situation is when we, as your mom and dad, are able to help you and Dan in such a way that you are both more able to fully realize God's purpose in your marriage. Always move forward together. Learn how to appreciate your in-laws, us included, without letting them control or intrude in your marriage. Now, most of the long-term parents here said, I need to take that and give that to my mom and dad, and we've been married for 20 years, right? But, but the whole idea here is, this is God has, has created this new unit that, that is going to be prime, that's going to stand over every other unit. It's going to supersede my daughter's relationship with me as her dad. And if God gives them life, they're going to be with each other much longer. And God has affected some sort of union between them that's intimate. So it's not only a new family, but it's an intimate union. It's, it's a sexual union. It constitutes what was formerly two people of different sexes and genders as one flesh. Right? There's now a distinct new entity made out of the two. This is embodied in their conjugal act and, and takes concrete shape in their children if God so blesses them. So this is what we left with what Jesus has done. He intends... Men to be men, women to be men, uh, women, and that for men and women to come toward each other if God so gifts them and enables them. And when they're united, they bring different things to the table. And they make this three-way covenant that they, with God themselves and with each other, unite together in a union that is a mutual commitment. I'm going to have two or three weddings I'll be doing this summer, and I always love the vow parts where the, the people come fully, and I say, I don't care what happens. I say this to the bride. I don't care what happens in the background, but I want you fully present when you're making a commitment to this man for life. And you as a groom, I want you fully present when you say these words, when you say, I will give myself to you and you only for as long as we both shall live. I will keep myself to you. I will take you for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, till death do us part. God, help me. Mutual. It's complementary. She's bringing things that he needs that he doesn't even know he needs. She knows he needs. And she's, he's bringing things to her that she needs. It's intimate. It's exclusive. It's primary. It's lifelong. And this is what God intends. Now, marriage is not the only place where males and females find the fullness of this. And this comes out in Tim Keller's quote, but he nicely summarizes this, and you'll see this here. That means that male and female have unique, non-interchangeable glories. They each see and do things that the other cannot. Sex was created by God to be the way to mingle these strengths and glories within a lifelong covenant of marriage. Marriage is the most intense, though not the only, because Scripture teaches that God can gift people to be single. There's a, there's a God-honoring way to be single. A lot to talk about there. We don't have time to go there. But marriage is the most intense place where the reunion of male and female takes place in human life. Male and female reshape, learn from, and work together. There's a dynamic that's needed for the man to fully become a man and a woman to become a woman. Therefore, in one of the great ironies of late modern times when we celebrate diversity in so many other cultural sectors, we have truncated the ultimate unity and diversity, intergendered marriage. So let's draw some of the threads together. And here's some things you may want to note down uh, as we summarize the teaching of Jesus here. 
First, Matthew wants us to know that what he includes of Jesus' teaching is for us until the end of the age, right? If you're the in, inside the internal discussion among Christians sometimes, is this really applicable, Jesus' teaching for us to the end of the age? And I just say, yes, because Jesus says so. So I want you to take what I've taught you, i.e. the book of Matthew, and I want you to take it and teach it until the end of the age. Has the end of the age happened yet? No, okay? It hasn't. Jesus hasn't returned yet, and he's coming. Just as he left, he's going to return. We live in between those moments. And so this is our truth for the, till the end of the age. So that's important for us to know. Two, he teaches that God's creation design must shape our understanding of ourselves and our relationships. Right? God has, has created you as a, a, a female and created you as a male. He's created us as human beings. He's the designer. He, he knows who we are. He knows how we're supposed to be related to Him and related to each other and related to our world and related to our neighbor. So I'm going to trust Him for that. Three, Jesus teaches us that gender as sex is not constructed, it's created. Now, what I want to be careful about here is I'm not saying that everything that you find everywhere in culture, God creates, but I'm saying that deep as a male, deep as a female, there's a distinctness that He's given you in terms of your gender, that, that is true of every person. Now, it may be variously expressed in different cultures, but until the West, in this moment, you go around to any culture across the globe and they recognize that men and women are different. They dress different. They have different types of functions. And this is all trying to honor, respect, celebrate, and, and nurture and channel those resources. Yeah, there's all kinds of brokenness there, but that's universal. Four, Jesus teaches that God made men and women unique from each other, but for each other at the same time. Five, Jesus leaves no room for any other gender options, and he makes no distinctions between biological sex and gender. This concept is foreign to Scripture as a whole. It's foreign to the world of Jesus' time, and, and it's been foreign to all cultures until the West in the, late, in the early 20th century, late 20th, early 21st century. Sixth, this suggests that to love your neighbors is to encourage them to embrace sex and gender as a unity and to treat that aspect of their identity as something to celebrate, nurture, express, and protect. And this may be something that you hold out for them on your knees only because they can't hear you say it to them. This may be something that you weep in private over, that you yearn for them, even as you struggle with them with the pull. Jesus' teaching suggests that to sever sex from gender is to distort humanity, it's to harm people. You know, one of the leading practitioners who was on the front edge of, of uh, sex reassignment surgery, don't want to go into all of that, but he's become a staunch opponent of it now because the psychological impact of the surgery on the people who've gone all the way to make the transition has not appreciably improved their lives. Jesus suggests that love cannot endorse and celebrate the disintegration of one of God's good gifts and the disintegration of the person that results from it. Believers must be fixed points of compassion. This is what Denny Burke says, and you'll see this here. Truth-telling is always necessary to the Christian. Speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. We are not allowed to speak in ways that are fundamentally dishonest, that undermine the truth of God's word about how he made us in the world. 
Now, this isn't odd for us as Christians. Any good friend in here, any parent, has been a fixed point of compassion at some time. You know what the fixed point of compassion is? One of my older daughters right now regrets this day, even though it was just a part of, of growing up and probably what I did to my mom and dad too. She had this moment where she just melted down and said, I hate you. you, you you're trying to crush my life. You're trying to take every bit of fun out of it. You're just trying to do X, Y, and Z. You know, every parent, you've had one of those moments. And if you haven't, I'm thank God that you haven't had one. And I was having this, and it was just like she was taking a dagger and going like that. And it just hurt me deeply. And I hung in there, and I said, honey, I know I know you don't believe me, but I love you more than you understand, and I still say no. I still say no, no. I can't let you do that. No, I can't be happy about that. With tears in my eyes. Sam Albury, some of you, if you haven't read him, I would encourage you. Sam Albury is a follower of Jesus. There's a man that, that struggles with same-sex attraction. And he, he lives a celibate life serving the Lord, writing on these issues, entering into the lives of other people, struggling with these, this pull on their life. And Sam Albury puts this kind of succinctly. Our culture says your psychology is your sexual identity. Let your body be conformed to it. And the Bible says your body is your sexual identity. Let your mind be conformed to it. And the question that comes before us as we here think biblically and Christianly and Christly about our world is it true our world wants to say that all you are as a human being is a Lego kit? Right? Now, might be some people in here have lots of Legos in their homes. If you have young men, you, you probably do that. I was in a house the other day that I could not walk on the floor of a bedroom because it was covered with Lego disasters, right? And things in various forms of being made and unmade. Um, but you know, the, the, the Lego little motto here is, is you know, it's any, you can make anything, whatever you believe it is, that's what it is the Lego model. The scriptures say, no, you're a masterpiece that needs restoration. You've been created by a God who wants you to know the fullness of human life. He wants to free you from greed, from thinking that pride, thinking that you're, you're all that and you can make it on your own. He wants to free you from, from stealing. He wants to free you from insecurity. He wants to free you from envy. He wants to free you from, from lust. He wants to free you from a distorted sense of yourself. He wants to bring you to wholeness. Will we be the people of God who believe that the Creator has the right and the know-how to structure and will we trust Him and lean in on Him and depend on Him? Will we be willing as Jesus, the whole time of this present moment is his patience, will we be willing to join him on our knees, patiently loving people who are in dark places? Will we go to the cross again and again to get reacquainted with grace that as I approach anyone who struggles with anyone, I approach it as someone who's been redeemed and who need graces every day? Will we do that and trust in him? I end this with my wife at a, at a prayer book that she was praying for my daughters as they were growing up. And both of us, I remember talking about, it was a new publication at the time. And one of the prayers in the book was, God, would you help my son, would you help my daughter embrace their identity as you've created them? My mom didn't pray that way. Well, we as the people of God 
be willing to love hard for the sake of the people in our life? Will we hold on to Jesus, be fixed point of compassion? Young people, I say this to you too. You're in the teeth of the storm. In the social arena, you're in the teeth. And people are pulling on you and trying to say, you're a hater if you don't embrace this. And I just want to encourage you to let the Lord of life define for you what love is. Let the Lord of life. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercies to us today. Lord, we need your help today. Lord, we live, uh, Lord, you know, you came into the darkness, Lord, to bring light. And Lord, we were in the darkness and you delivered us. Lord, not because of what we've done, we don't stand here, Lord, because we have something that, that we stand here on our own merits. We stand on here because you, you rescued us when we were rebels and running our own direction and didn't want anything to do with you. And you, by your grace, Lord, that turned us around and, and, and changed us and set us on a different path. Lord, help us, Lord, to trust you, to follow you. Help us to love hard, tenaciously. Lord, protect us. Uh, Lord, keep us from distraction, from lies. Lord, save us, Lord, we pray. And Lord, help us to be your instruments in the world. We pray in Christ's name, amen.